Good morning. Today's first Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 1. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Well, good morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Philip, uh, also known as Joanne's husband. Um, Everyone knows her because she's Joanne. Um, I've been around here for a while. Um, Just for a bit of context, I wear two hats during the week. Um, I'm a GP part-time, but I'm also part-time doing a PhD in theology at uh, the Bible College of South Australia. Enroll now for next year. Um, yeah, that's me. Um, what we're going to do today, um, we're going to be talking about perspective. Uh, and to set this scene, I'm going to talk to you about two men. Now, first of all, who has read anything by an author named H.P. Lovecraft? I found a fellow nerd. Excellent. Anyone else? No, represent, brother. All right. Uh, he was famous for um, short stories. Uh, his most famous is one called The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, he himself is a pretty tragic figure. He spent most of his life being xenophobic, kind of racist, um, and generally being afraid of a lot of things. Um, and he expressed himself in his imaginary worlds. He effectively started a whole genre of this weird fiction. In his writings, um, humanity is tiny and insignificant, and the universe is populated by beings of such tremendous power and bizarre, incomprehensible otherness that mere dreams of them would drive people to madness. His writing is uh, fascinating, but it's bleak, and it's laced throughout with despair for insignificant humans in an unknowable and uncaring universe. The second person, uh, may or may not be human, um, goes by the name of Zaphod Beeblebrooks. Um, he's, of course, a character from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. At one point, Zaphod gets taken to something called the Total Perspective Vortex. Uh, the idea of this device is that it would plug into the victim's brain and it would show them just how minute and insignificant an individual is in the vastness of the universe, leading to complete madness. 
Um, the story goes that it was invented by a man to annoy his wife because she kept telling him to get a bit of perspective. Um, his point was that too much perspective is not a good thing. Now, we're going to come back to Lovecraft and Beeblebrooks in a bit, uh, but first let's pray, and then we'll get stuck into Ephesians. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us and the freedom that we have to, uh, to read it freely, to gather openly, um, and to hear from your word. Father, please change us through it to your glory. Amen. All right. Well, I love getting stuck into the first chapter of Ephesians last week, and as, it good, as good as it was... Um, Reading a whole chapter like Ephesians 1, it can feel like getting a drink from a fire hydrant, um, doesn't it? There's just so much going on through the whole chapter. Uh, now, Matt's done a great job last week of giving us that overview, which was really helpful for us. But today, we're going to dial in on just two and a half verses that really represent the heart of Paul's opening doxology here in chapter 1. Now, they're going to help us over the next few weeks as we study the rest of Ephesians, because they really highlight the whole framework that Paul is working from. Um, but we're also going to use them as a bit of a reality check for ourselves, an assessment of our own worldview and our own perspective. So first, let's get stuck into these verses by reading them again, since they're short, and then we'll pick them apart a little and just see how they play out. So Ephesians 1, 8b to 10. With all wisdom and understanding... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So there's a few key ideas going on here. Now, first of all, in verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, when Paul calls this a mystery, it it feels a bit like we're getting to peek behind the curtain here uh, to see the secret workings of the universe. And in a sense, that's exactly what's going on. But at the same time, it's a good idea for us to clarify what he is and isn't talking about when he calls it a mystery. Uh, First of all, when Paul calls this a mystery, he isn't saying that it's something that's hidden or something that's unknown. Now, the, the whole point that Paul is making here is that Christ, that in Christ, God's will, which was previously a mystery, has been made known. Now, the term mystery, uh, it comes up a number of times in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writing, and that's the way it's almost always used, not as something unknown, but as something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. Now, the second sense of mystery that we shouldn't mistake this for is the idea of some kind of secret knowledge. Now, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, um, there were a number of so-called mystery religions. Uh, and They were these secretive affairs where the hidden knowledge of the sect would only be revealed to the properly initiated. Now, that's actually the opposite of what Paul is talking about here. Um, The mystery of God's will has been publicly and openly revealed to the world in the person and work of Jesus. Now, we've just spent four weeks uh, talking about God's desire for the great news of the gospel to be declared widely, not kept secret. So, the revealed mystery of God's will is not an unknown, and it isn't a secret. So, given that, if the will of God, His grand plan, has been revealed in in Christ, 
The obvious question is, what is it? What's the grand plan? Well, it's, it's right there in verse 10. To bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. Sounds good? Well, it does. It does sound good to bring unity to a fractured and divided world. But as grand plans for the universe go, it seems a little vague, um, at least in the way that it's expressed here. So let's pin it down a bit. Um, and to do that, we're just going to dig a little bit deeper, uh, do something we don't often do, but talk about the translation that's going on here. If you were to compare a variety of English versions of this, uh, of this verse, you would see some differences in the way that it's translated. Um, where our NIV, which is a great translation, it says, bring unity. Others might say, sum up or gather together. Um, now, they're all good translations uh, for a little bit of a tricky word. The Greek word behind it, it actually means to recapitulate. Now, recapitulation isn't a term that we use a whole lot these days in English, um, or at least in its full form. We're far more familiar with it in its shortened ver- art form of recap. So to, reca- to recapitulate is to recap, or to summarize. Now, this idea of recapitulation, it was a really common rhetorical and legal technique amongst the ancient Greeks. Um, If they were going to present a long and detailed philosophical argument or a legal case, then the strength of their logic might get lost in all the details. So at the end, they would offer what they called a recapitulation or a concluding summary that would bring together all of the different threads and highlights into a powerful final statement that carried the weight of the entire case. So what does that mean for God's grand plan here in Ephesians 1 verse 10? Well, it means that God's plan for creation is that it is summed up in Christ. Now, in some ways that might not be any less vague, so let's put it this way. If Jesus Christ recapitulates or sums up all of creation, then this means that it's in Him that all of creation finds its fulfillment and purpose. All things in heaven and on earth find their meaning in Jesus Christ. They always have and they always will. So the nature of this plan is that it's always been the plan. Um, In verse 9 there, Paul tells us that it was purposed in Christ. It was always the way that things were intended. Now, prior to Jesus, it was a mystery that was yet to be revealed, but the plan was already there. The truth is that when we talk about this revealed mystery of God's grand plan for all creation, it's always been there from the beginning. It's been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus, and it will come to its completion in the new creation to come. But it's all the same plan from beginning to end. So let's pause there and take stock of where we're up to. Um, We've zoomed right in to verses 9 and 10 to look at them more closely and tease out what they mean a little bit. And we've talked about Christ recapitulating or summing up all of creation. Now, that makes me happy because, first, it really helps us grasp this underlying rationale of Ephesians and God's grand plan for creation. And, second, because recapitulation is my PhD topic and I'm a shameless nerd. (laughs) Uh, 
hard to tell. Um, where, do, where does that leave us? Um, well, having zoomed in, it's time to zoom out, like way, way out. And we're going to start talking about perspective again. These verses that we've looked at in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 1, they're about the big picture, aren't they? Um, the biggest picture. They tell us this great truth that shapes our reality and our worldview. The truth that it's all about Jesus. Everything. Christ is all in all, the center and the meaning of existence itself. Now, this is where our Colossians passage is helpful. Um, in a lot of ways, it's actually quite similar to these verses we've looked at in Ephesians, but they just kind of flesh it out more. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time in Colossians, but even a brief scan tells us actually quite a lot. Um, from Colossians 1, it, verse 16, it tells us that everything was created in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Verse 17, everything holds together in Him. Um, verse 18, He is supreme over all things. Verse 19 and 20, all things are reconciled to God through Him. Everything in all of creation is all about Jesus. So here's the kicker. If this is true, if everything in creation is all about Jesus, then we really don't have any reasonable option other than to make every part of our lives about Jesus. Now, if you're, if you're someone that's, uh, that's just checking us out today, um, if you're not a Christian or maybe new to Christianity, just investigating, these might sound like pretty bold claims, um, audacious claims even, um, and you'd be right, to be fair. Um, they are bold claims. But this understanding of the universe is the foundation on, of, on which all of Christianity stands. Uh, it's a background to everything that we believe. And if you take a moment to consider life through this lens, a lot of Christianity actually starts making sense. So please do keep ex exploring that thought. Uh, for those of us who are Christians, then I think it's going to be a good idea for us to take these verses as a bit of a reality check, um, a diagnostic, as it were, of our worldview. Because I think there's a number of areas where we can start to lose sight of this. We're going to look at four of them. For those of you who like counting points to see how long to the end of the sermon, um, we're going to talk about four points now, but there's another three points after that. So just <laughs> managing expectations. All right. Uh, first of all, just as a little exercise, take a look at Ephesians 1, if you've got it in front of you, on your, on your phone or a Bible or whatever. And just in that first half of Ephesians 1, scan those, those verses and see how many times Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, or in Him. You start, it doesn't take long before you start racking up the fingers on your hands, does it? He, he uses that phrase a lot. Um, throughout his writing, uh, being a Christian or being part of God's people, it's talked about in terms of being in Christ. Christ is the center, and we're invited to be included in His sacrifice, in His victory over sin and death, in His resurrection, and in His eternal reign. Now, hold that thought, and consider this. 
Um, you've no doubt heard the idea, uh, it gets tossed around frequently, um, about being a Christian is about inviting Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven. Do you know where in the Bible that comes from? Um, some people were surprised to find out that it doesn't really come from anywhere. Um, well, not in the Bible, anyway. Um, now, there's a lot more to be said about that, and, and I don't want to quibble about things. So let me get to my point. When you consider your relationship with Jesus, is it about how he fits into your life and what he achieves for you? Or is it about how he is the center of all things and about his invitation to be part of his church, of which he is the head? To put it really bluntly, is your view of the universe ultimately about Jesus or about you? I think we need to be constantly on the lookout to make sure that we don't stray into that error. Because certainly in our context, in, in Western um, individualism, it's a really real risk for us. Something to ponder later. Our second point of challenging worldviews. Let's talk about a guy called Irenaeus, one of the church fathers. Uh, he was the Bishop of Lyon in the south of France, um, late in the second century, so he's a pretty old guy. He wrote is what's probably the earliest substantial theological work that we're aware of, um, and he was dealing with a big problem in the church um, called Gnosticism. Um, in essence, Gnosticism it was similar to those mystery religions that I mentioned before. Uh, Gnosticism, they held themselves, they, they proposed that to be truly Christian, you had to have a secret knowledge above and beyond what's in Scripture so that you could transcend this physical world and enter into spiritual existence. Uh, for them, and they were kind of borrowing from Plato here, physical matter was something bad, uh, something evil to be escaped to ascend to the, to the spiritual. What does that have to do with Ephesians 1.10? Um, well, quite a lot, actually. Um, Irenaeus drew from this verse really heavily in his refutation of those Gnostic heresies. If all of creation is summed up in Christ, if all creation was created by him and through him and for him, then the Gnostics were really wrong in declaring physical things to be evil. Remember, Christ doesn't interact with creation from afar. In the incarnation, he became human. He became part of creation as the new Adam, as the new perfect human. Now, we might not be tempted to declare that all matter is evil, um, but I think we're at some risk of making a similar sort of error in discounting the physical. Um, there is a historical tendency in Western Christianity to act like we're going to leave all of this behind one day, um, so it doesn't really matter. Um, remember that that final picture in the book of Revelation, it's not a disembodied existence in heaven, flapping around on clouds. Um, it's the new creation. Uh, where this world and us in it will be renewed and, and perfected. And this world matters because it was created by Jesus it was created for Jesus, he has entered into it as one of us. So we need to consider how we treat it as his people.
third, and this will just be a brief one, Jesus isn't some sort of a cosmic maintenance man. Um, he didn't just happen to notice one day that the world and its inhabitants were broken, so he better get on down there and fix it up. Uh, this is similar to the previous point, actually, uh, because it's thinking this way, it treats creation as something that's incidental or unimportant or unplanned. Um, what Ephesians uh, 1 verses 9 and 10 tells us, in contrast, is that Christ being the center of all creation, that was the plan right from the beginning. Uh, not only is uh, creation all about Jesus, but it has always been all about Jesus. It's not an accident. And fourthly, we need to think about how we consider Jesus in every little corner of our lives. It's all too easy to only consider him, um, to only engage with him in his designated parts of the week. Uh, you know, church, certainly. Um, you know, maybe a midweek Bible study, or uh, perhaps you're dipping into a Christian podcast or reading a Christian book of some kind, that sort of thing. Outside of those things, how much is Christ shaping our thoughts and our lives? Or are large chunks of our week effectively secular? The thing is, if Christ is the source and purpose of all of creation, then there's no such thing as a secular work week. Um, he is as much the centre of creation when we're in a church gathering like we are now as he is when we're doing some annoying homework or trying to wrangle kids into bed again or trying to write the cover page of that TPS report that you keep having to do. I say this as someone that uh, faces the same challenge. Um, we've got to rid ourselves of this mythical notion that there are secular moments in our lives. Um, now, you might not explicitly think that way, but if you're like me, it's just too easy to act that way, that there's parts of life where Christ doesn't really come into account. So these two and a half verses, they've given us a lot to think about. Um, and they do really challenge our worldview and our perspective on the world, and rightly so. Now, I've wondered, as an occasional thought experiment, what would happen if I were to be subjected to that total perspective vortex, like Zafford Briebelbrox? Now, in the book, it turns out, I'd say spoiler alert, but it's like 40 years old or something, so if you haven't read it, then too bad. Um, but do read it, it's great. Now, in the book, um, he didn't actually go mad like everyone else did. In fact, it turns out that he was at that moment existing in a parallel universe which was created for his own protection. So the perspective vortex only confirmed what he thought in the first place, that he was indeed the most important thing in the entire universe. Now, obviously the vortex wouldn't tell me that I'm the most important thing in the universe. I don't think it would actually send us mad either. I think it would show us that the universe is about Jesus Christ. And while we may be tremendously small and unworthy in comparison, we also know that we are of great, great worth because that same Jesus that is at the center of all creation, he became one of us and he invited us to live in him. That's what needs to shape our perspective. Now, 
if I, I think if we left it there, I think we'd actually be shortchanging what God's Word is telling us here. I think it's useful to have those correctives and challenges to our um, perspective and to correct any kind of uh, wrong perspectives on the world. But I think Paul is also offering something more here. Now, notice how Paul starts this opening doxology in Ephesians, uh, in verse 3. It's not with rebuke, it's not with correction, but it's with worship. Verse 3 starts, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain this grand plan of all that Christ has done and who He is. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to see this echoed throughout Ephesians multiple times, um, that we have been called and redeemed for the praise of His glory. That phrase will come, a lot, come up a lot. We exist for the praise of His glory because He is the center and meaning and purpose of all things in heaven and on earth. So to finish this morning, let's spend a bit of time thinking about how these verses lead us to worship. First of all, I think these verses teach us to read well. Now, I'm not just talking about reading the Bible here, although it certainly does do that. Um, these verses, after all, they undergird the whole drama of Scripture um, and of God's work in the world, and understanding that centrality of Christ from creation through to new creation, that's actually essential for understanding the Bible well. But it also helps us read other things. It helps us to read culture, for example, and especially our place in culture. Just like Irenaeus found that Gnosticism was infiltrating the second century church, so too are we at risk of having untruths creep into our understanding. We can't escape living within a culture of some kind or another, and we do need to be, uh, to, uh, be aware of any encroaching influence that would move us away from seeing Christ as the center of all things. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to take on some sort of a protectionist shunning of outsiders um, and live in communes. This is precisely the opposite of what we see in the New Testament. Um, what it does mean is that we need to keep reminding each other and ourselves of the truth so that we can stay true to the calling to live our lives in worship of the true God. This isn't about fear of the outside. This is about the opportunity and privilege to worship God in wisdom and in truth. Second, this leads us to set everything in perspective all of the time. It lets us have big cosmic thoughts in the small mundane moments of life. Now, I've talked about the, uh, secular, the idea of the, the myth of the secular work week. This idea lets us turn that on its head. If Christ sums up all of creation as its source and its purpose then this affects our understanding of changing a nappy or cleaning your room or just going through the droning grunt work of your work week just as much as it shapes our understanding of church or Bible study. Alfred Hitchcock used to speak of uh, movies being like life but with all the boring bits taken out. Here's the thing. The vast majority of life 
is the boring bits. Now, that doesn't make them meaningless or irrelevant to God, because Christ is the centre of all creation, not just the exciting bits. God created us for the mundane as well as the remarkable, and we have the privilege of living lives of worship throughout all of these moments. Now, I personally have a tendency to be always find myself looking forward to landmarks or milestones in life to make changes uh, and to see God at work then. Um, you know, once I finish my PhD, you know, then things will really get going. Um, or, you know, maybe it's when, you know, the kids are all off at school or when I get that big promotion or something like that. Um, sound familiar, I suspect? It's just wrong thinking. We're not created just for big moments. Um, we're not only called to, cry, to follow Christ in dramatic events, we're called to follow Him and to praise Him in every moment, which are mostly mundane and unremarkable, because Christ is the centre of all creation, not just the exciting bits. Now, I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like in your life, and to be honest, it's something I'm, I'm still learning myself, but I suspect for most people, it's going to involve slowing down and adding space in your week to reflect. I think it will probably involve cultivating a constant attitude of prayerful thankfulness. And I'm pretty sure that for just about everyone in the room, there's some hard thinking and possibly harder decisions to make about what we prioritise in the week. Uh, with those sort of thoughts in mind, I've, been, uh, I've started reading a, quite a fascinating book recently by Tish Harrison Warren. Um, it's called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Yes, that is peanut butter and jam on toast. Uh, she embraces the ordinary aspect. Um, and it's exactly what it, um, it, she does exactly what she says. It's about cultivating godly habits that recognize the supremacy of Christ in the ordinary moments, finding the sacred in the mundane. Um, she's very clear, she's winsome, she's very sensible. I'd certainly recommend it. I'm enjoying it so far um, from, what I've, uh, from what I've read. Um, that might be something you want to look at or something else. Talk to people around you about how, how they do it in your community group or uh, Christian friends. Put into action a plan to think about how to worship God in the mundane moments in the knowledge that Christ is the centre of all things. So finally, that brings us to our main point here, is that Christ is the centre of all things and that should lead us to worship, always. I find it fascinating to realise that my Christian worldview, in a lot of ways, isn't really that different from H.P. Lovecraft's work. We both see the universe as vast and humans as tiny specks within it, we see it ruled over by a being, or beings in his case, so large and powerful that they defy human comprehension. But Paul Lovecraft was driven to hopelessness and despair by his feelings of insignificance in the face of all that. The difference between us and Lovecraft is that we know that the otherwise unknowable creator of the universe he has revealed himself to us. He's made himself knowable in the person of Jesus Christ, who was born human, 
he died and rose again and now reigns over the universe. And he's invited us to live with him into eternity as his people. In place of Lovecraft's hopelessness, we have God's loving kindness. And in place of his despair, we are driven to worship. So I can't think of a better way to finish than to reread a few verses from Ephesians 1 that we looked at last week. And it should be a regular prayer for all of us that our hearts and minds will be constantly shaped by the knowledge that Christ is the center of all things. So let me finish by reading Paul's words from Ephesians 1, from verses 18 to 21. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come.